Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, class, if I could have your attention, the homework last night was pages 536 to 552 in your textbook, The American Experience. This covers the presidential crisis in 1998 and its origins, so let's just see how much you absorbed. What happened on November 15th, 1995? Nora. There was a birthday party at the White House Chief of Staff's office, and Monica Lewinsky flashed her thong straps at President Clifton. Clinton. Whatever. Can anyone tell me what happened next? Damien? They met later on that day in the president's office and... Okay, I wasn't necessarily expecting you to be so graphic. Uh, Does anybody know what happened two days later? Nora. They met again and she... Well, he was on the phone to a congressman. See, now again, I know I'm always asking you to be specific and provide details, but this time I think it's fine if we just speak in general terms. Does anybody know when Lewinsky and Clinton actually had their first substantive conversation? Alan? February 4th, 1996, which was two and a half months after the first... That's correct, but this is an American history class, not a porn site. I'm going to have to ask all of you to please stop using such vivid imagery, okay? But, Ms. Wolf, how are we supposed to discuss this period in American history if we can't mention... Not to mention... On the dress... And the in the bathroom. Okay, that's it. Take out your books and read silently for the rest of the period. Read chapter 17, which is about John Edwards and Anthony Weiner. Wait a minute, don't read that. Just play dodgeball for the rest of the period. I'm leaving. Today on the nose, Monica Lewinsky is back in the news. Also, the enduring power of the uncool TV show. And now, he dry-cleaned the blue dress he wore during his relationship with Kay Bailey Hutchison... Colin McEnroe. And that was probably a mistake. It might have been, except that nobody knows who she is anymore, so I couldn't have sold it on eBay. Never mind. All right, so uh, today it's the nose. We're welcoming a brand new, exciting new nose panelist here. But first of all, let me tell you about the old panelists. Not that they're the old panelists. We would never think of them that way. Uh, with us is uh, author, uh, short story writer, food critic, bon vivant, uh, movie critic, uh, Rand Cooper. Uh, and then enjoying just as many titles, uh, but mostly in the musical world, uh, guitar hero, producer, uh, I could go on and on, Jim Chapdelaine, uh, and making her debut, a millennial, a millennial nose panelist, and boy, did we need her today. Everybody, uh, say hello to Rebecca Castellani. She's a scholar of modern literature and a local nerd. And so we are going to begin, begin with Monica Lewinsky, and I will say something about it, that in just a second. Uh, but then uh, in the uh, second segment, we're going to talk a little bit about why, in fact, the television shows that you read about in magazines by you know high-profile critics like Emily Nussbaum, uh, or that you listen to discussed on public radio by people like Terry Gross, or for that matter, me or Eric Deggins, are not actually the shows that people watch, uh, at least not in droves. So that you know, basically NCIS, which nobody ever talks about, uh, has 15 million viewers and. <clears throat> 
Mad Men has like two million viewers, uh, but we talk all the time about Mad Men. Anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about that, or as Rand put it, the enduring power of uncool television. Uh, but first, we are going to begin with the return of Monica Lewinsky to uh, the uh, to the news pages. Oh, and I have to sort of do a fourth wall thing. I think we might have forgotten to flip the computer over to he- over to here, so uh, someone has to run around and do that. That's like a little technical thing that you just heard about. Uh, Monica Lewinsky is back to the back in the world of the news. She has written a four thousand word essay. Uh, in Vanity Fair. Um, this, of course, has occasioned a flood tide uh, of commentary about said essay. Uh, and so we're sort of back where we started again. So I, I didn't know that this was going to be the topic before I invited Rebecca to come here for the first time. Uh, you are a young person, and the first thing I assumed was maybe you didn't know anything at all about Monica Lewinsky. But it turns out I'm completely wrong about that, right? Yeah, I read the Andrew Morton biography, Monica's story, <laughs> which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, very interesting prose narrative for that. Um, so I kind of picked up my facts that way. And then I've always had a little interest in the scandal because I followed the Clinton administration pretty closely. I mean, one of the things that I sent around uh, this uh, over the last couple of days was a Washington Post piece where it, it said for millennials, uh, there was like a moment when your fifth grade teacher came in and sort of had to explain to the class that they were going to be hearing a lot about something anyway on the news and that, that certain details needed. Did you actually have that moment where some teacher or somebody had to explain to you what was going on here? I don't recall it happening at school. I do recall conversations at home because we were a very news-centric family. So when the impeachment trial was going on, there definitely were some – <laughs> moments of questioning as to what, you know, they're discussing. I didn't understand all of it either. Uh, no, well. So, eight, uh, by the way, if you want to join this conversation, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So we're all going to talk a little bit about this. I found as I went along here and I began to think more and more about this and unearth this and see what Monica Lewinsky had to say about herself these days and what everybody else had to say about her, I found myself getting more confused than ever uh, because there really are, I think, two fairly legitimate schools of thought or ways to look at uh, this particular person who has now reached the age of 40. But Rand, I'll just like I'll just give you the most open invitation possible. I mean, where where are your thoughts going on this little cultural and historical moment right now? Well, um, maybe less to Monica herself than to uh, issues that 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 whole flap um, poses. It's been 20 years and um, you know, there's there's immediate there's short term memory, there's longer term memory. Ultimately, there's history. So if we have sort of a, a spectrum of context in which a presidency is going to be assessed, it it uh, there, there's yesterday's news, today's headlines, and then you know we're now moving closer to a historical sense of the Clinton presidency, and you know, it's 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 uncertain what that sense is going to be, but. You know, there, there. He happened to preside over a, a time of great American prosperity when, when the one American uh, en- enemy, great enemy, had collapsed in the dust. We had this brief moment of sort of controlling everything in the world. One can criticize him on a number of fronts. Maybe he didn't do very much. Maybe he uh, uh, he actually helped uh, create some of the conditions that conduced to the to the uh, later financial meltdown by deregulating banks, perhaps colluding with. Wall Street in some ways in order to bring the Democratic Party back to the center. Uh, the end of welfare as we know it, that's a set of changes that are sp- still being debated. But here we are 20 years later, not really talking about those things, but talking about the blue dress. So I think one sort of interesting area we can look at is 
um, the, the, the intense personalization of politics in, in the 20th century. If you compare his impeachment with the two prior impeachments of American presidents, you see a very different set of precipitating <clears throat> causes. So you know, there's, that's something to talk about. And there are other things as well, but I don't want to hog it. Well, and, and for me, Jim, I mean, uh, one of the pieces that we read, the New Republic piece, talks about her being kind of, well, I think uh, Hillary Clinton once described herself as a Rorschach blot onto which people project all kinds of things. And, and Monica is described pretty much the same way in the Republic piece. People put all kinds of things on here, her, whether those things are there or not. But I realized over the last few days that I haven't sorted out my own feelings, that on the one hand, this young woman, or she's 40 now, I don't know if she gets to be a young woman anymore, but she was a young woman, and for one period of incredibly bad judgment, which she herself concedes in the piece, you know, she really has lived this this life that it, it's really like something out of Greek mythology. You're just hounded to the ends of the earth, and, and you can't escape this one set of understandings about you. And, and I, I've wondered even what I would do if I were similarly notorious, you know. And, and it seems grossly unfair, and I kind of understand some of the objections she has to the way she was talked about, even by feminists. On the other hand, I look at her and I think there was no real reason why she had to write this piece. She still looks kind of the same way she did. If I were her, I'd cut my hair. I'd change my appearance. I might change my name or use only my first initial. I'd live in Amsterdam. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I would do. But she seems oddly still back in that moment. So is that an act of reclamation on her part? Is it the fact that at 19 she didn't have an internal landscape to explore and now she's turning 40 and she's able to reflect on this, you know, moment in her, this watershed moment in her life and and try to put it behind her? Seems sort of maybe not the way to do it, but she's certainly lived her life in a spotlight. And more interesting to me is not even the article, but the attention that the article's getting and the sort of blowback that the article's getting, even from feminists. And I, I think, like, where's Andrea Dworkin when you need her? Um, where is these sort of radical feminists who's, who are going to come out and defend her? Uh, and I think some are. But I noticed the other day, if, if we could zoom out a little bit, that the actress who I, who I really like, Shailene Woodley, came out and sort of uh, dismissed feminism as a silly notion. And I don't think she understands that she wouldn't have the ability to do that if there weren't feminists, that maybe she had to look at her contract. She's probably getting 30 percent less than the leading man she's with or whatever. I, I think there's sort of a, a double standard uh, and, and like you, I can't I, – I certainly haven't figured out the, the whole thing because I haven't read the entire article. I don't think it's completely out yet, is it? Or no, you can get it if you uh, take a d- digital subscription to oh, it. Right, right. It costs you 17 bucks to read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually scoured the newsstands this morning to see if I could actually find a hard copy. Yeah. Um, just as we go along here, I also want to invite people to chime in if they need to. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You know, Rebecca, one of the things she says in the essay is that the occasion for the essay is in many respects her reflections about the suicide of Tyler Clementi, the young man who was – captured uh, on, on video record, kissing another young man, wind up um, uh, killing himself. Um, and, and, and yet, that actually happened quite a long time ago. And, and the, the positioning of the piece, I know you sort of said this in one of your comments as we emailed back and forth, it seemed more like a piece about this particular political moment. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, she makes a statement where she says, I'm trying to change my dialogue and take back my story. But there's really nothing in the piece to that point. I mean, she's not changing the narrative. It's the same narrative that we all know. It's the same. She doesn't 
change any of the tawdry details. She still claims it was consensual, which she's claimed from the beginning. Um, and to kind of tack on the Tyler Clementi thing, really towards the end of the piece, seemed to me just a little gratuitous and without really much connection throughout the rest of the article. And if you look at the political climate right now, especially with the prospect of Hillary running in 2016, it does feel a little bit, and she does go on to talk about Hillary extensively at the end of the article, it does just feel a little politicized to me. And you just have to wonder if she's got any motivations politically in all this, now that she's trying to you know, be an advocate for standing up for bullying, which is such a hot topic these days. And you know, the other thing is, I mean, well, what were you going to say? Well, um, she may not have her uh, political agenda, but it's it's inescapable that this is timed by someone <laughs> or by some malicious imp of the political zeitgeist to uh, to to proceed by about a month what Hillary's next rollout book and her and her and her campaign, the the, the prospect of the Clinton dynasty now about possibly to achieve the second of what now some people are foreseeing is three ultimate installations that is eventually uh, President Chelsea. Um, uh, and her yet-to-be-born child. Well, exactly. Was it Prince who? Um, no. But um, uh, it, it, re- it recalls um, you know, her, her complaint, uh, essentially, as I understand it, is that her life has been destroyed and, and the Clintons have just bulldozed on. Well, at the time, back, back 20 years ago, there was lots of speculation uh, about what kind of marriage Bill and Hillary actually had. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what sort of marriage was it? What sort of woman was it who seemingly was able to tolerate this? What's, what did it tell us about their marriage? And one supposition was, well, their marriage is essentially dynastic. Dynastic marriages um, are not really about romantic love, and they're not about erotic jealousy. They're about the uh, joining of political interests. And one notion, you know, one way of explaining Hillary Clinton's seeming relative equanimity about this was to say, well, you know what? Their duties to each other are not fundamentally connubial. They're political. That's their affiliation and their service to each other. So the whole prospect of the dynastic relationship and reality of the Clintons is now brought up again by this book that will shed all that light on on Hillary and all that speculation and much of it very unkind speculation about Hillary. You know, one of the ways in which my mind was catapulted back uh, and, and this would be a hard thing, I think. Uh, it, it's it, it, it's something that we could, I think, never convey to millennials who are trying to sort of get their wrap their minds around it to the extent that they're interested at all in this. Now, is the degree to which that moment, and and that moment by that moment, I really do mean the release of the Star Report. And I have this very vivid memory of the day the Star Report came out. It came out. It was being released while I was on the air. Uh, I had an afternoon show on WTIC. I had Bill Curry, who had been a Clinton White House advisor, uh, on the air with me. And it was – this is back in the days when things were faxed. It was being faxed to us. And so that we got like a few pages and we, there would be a commercial break, you know, and we would frantically read these pages. And, you know, we had been accustomed to the, to the notion of what a political scandal or a political sex scandal was in the past. But it was more like J- everybody sort of thought JFK probably – you know, had these dalliances, and it was sort of left at that, pretty much. You know, Marilyn Monroe, Angie Dickinson, who knows? You know, this was the the, you know, the, things were being just described in really vivid, graphic, visceral terms. Unlike any, I, as we were looking at, it, I was thinking, this is going to change everything. It's going to change the face of journalism. It's going to change how we actually talk about sexuality in America. I mean, it, I just had never read stuff like this before. I mean, at least not about a sitting U.S. president um, and, and, and even envisioned trying to talk about it in the broadcast media. And I think here in 1998, having gone through 
John Edwards, Anthony Weiner, and God knows who else, it's sort of easy to forget like what that was like back then and how it really did kind of change things. Well, we accept now that the politics of personal destruction are are just politics as as normal, mm. and and you know that mm. that was the first moment. Um, I mean, obviously there were there were sexual dalliances that caused people problems. Before I remember Gary Hart's candidacy pretty much ending immediately once his who was who Donna Rice Donna yeah, Rice, Donna Rice. Rice the, the, boat, the boat was called <laughs> monkey business. This is the kind right. of thing. But you know, you you were nodding though. You you do get this. You do get the way that, that things changed. Yeah, I mean. This may sound naive, but I'm still very confused as to why we're conflating the private spheres with the public sphere so much. I think that the Clintons in their own right as individual people are brilliant politicians. And how much to what extent does it really matter the type of relationship they have? Now you're bringing common sense into it. That's between them. That has no place in this argument. (laughs) Okay. So I I remember because I was very discreetly seduced by Pat Nixon and nobody picked up on that when I was a teenager. (laughs) We all knew, but we didn't talk about it. Right. It was unspoken. But in addition to that, weren't five of the sort of prosecuting angry mob having an affair or have had a, you know, Henry Hyde had had an right. affair and there were love Bob children pumping, popping Newt out Ging- everywhere. Newt, Newt Gingrich. Yeah. Gingrich, I mean, yeah. Th- this was like this m- absurd moment in American history where all these people who had had affairs were trying to twist this argument just enough to make it about honesty. And in fact, their closets were full of peccadillos. And you have to remember that the background to this was the Whitewater investigation. And and the attempt to railroad right. Clinton and, and, and in, the, the in, murder of of uh, right and and this this um the the Lewinsky Vince the, Foster. A, a, episode and the fact that Baker. he he ultimately lied um, about it it's 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 easy now much easier than it was then especially if you were a Clinton partisan which which I was uh, at, at the time you you understood that the overall context back then was of the president facing relentless political enemies who were trying again and again to railroad him into some sort of corner of complicity. Uh, and, and this was, you know, really finally they were able to, to get him for, for having lied about this. And, 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 of course, the fact that he you know, looked us all in the face and, and said, I didn't do this. And, 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 and you think, well, you know, can he really, can he really be, be lying that blankly Looking us right in the eye with his with his. I did finger. not have sex with that woman. Right, right. right. And, and maybe that that's woman. what's so frustrating <laughs> to the opposition about someone like Obama, who doesn't have those sort of personal, except that he was born in Kenya and right. and isn't a well, citizen. That we know of too. Um, it, but or at least he doesn't seem <laughs> he doesn't. to play his personal life out on a stage. So we have to keep going back to Benghazi, 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 instead of Monica. Who, who, who? You know. And if, believe me, if this happened in France. He would be elected for a fourth term right now. Right. And that's the emba- – I mean constitutionally, isn't that the embarrassment or at least the telltale sign of, of this particular impeachment? Andrew Johnson is impeached after, after, after the Civil War <coughs> for issues having to do with highly <coughs> – excuse me – highly contested um, ideas about reconstruction and the politics of reconstruction. Uh, Nixon, well, you know, we know why he's impeached. And again, massive abuses of presidential power. That's a really substantial thing. Clinton is impeached because he, he, he had sex with a, with, with a woman. Well, uh, also that he might, might have perjured himself. Um, well, that was ultimately – Yeah, the, which the, the, and perjury is a significant crime. But, you know, Rebecca, the piece that Monica Lewinsky writes, um, I do think she has a couple of pretty valid arguments. And, I mean, the degree to which she became kind of – 
I mean, Objectify doesn't even really cover it. But, you know, she talks about the fact that, that Miley Cyrus and, and, and Beyonce and Eminem turned her into a verb, you know, a, basically involving one sex act. And, and that a group of feminists gathered for the New York Observer. The piece was called New York Super Gals Love Their Naughty Prez. I went back and read it. Uh, Francine Prose uh, wrote it, but she had this roundtable that included Erica Jong and Nancy Friday and all these people. And they really said pretty cruel things. You know, Erica Jong said that her orthodontist or somebody had said that uh, just looking at Monica, she could tell she had third stage gum disease. I mean, you, you don't say that about a young woman who's already in a tremendous amount of trouble, albeit of her making, but I mean, all of us exercised a lot of bad judgment. I mean, I think she does have a really good argument that we stopped treating her. I mean, really, not just the Clintons, not just everybody stopped treating her as a human being at a pretty early point. I mean, I think she is the 1990s answer to Hester Prynne. I mean, this narrative we've been getting from, you know, the beginning of our history is that certain women can be objectified into an archetype of the bad woman, and it's really easy to associate that with this history of adulteresses and adultering. And Monica Lewinsky just happened to make a bad decision that got her stuck for the rest of her life, cast as this character that she's now trying to say that she's not. But, you know, she had sexual relations with a president. You know, it's it's kind of like I can't feel that sorry for her because you've cast yourself in this own role. You know, she is up against a huge power structure, which itself was up against an even bigger power structure. So it seems to me if she's going to come back, the best thing she could do is get a really good PR firm to roll this. To, you want to reclaim your life, have it done professionally because this is too big. It's, be, it's a really big task what she's trying to under, undertake with a simple article like this. It may be too much to undertake, to expect. How? Here's the question in a nutshell. How do you become unnotorious mm-hmm. when your notoriety consists in one specific thing and one thing only? Now, there have been many sex scandals before. I don't think it was likely that Christine Keeler uh, or Fanny Fox uh, 10 years later were trying to get jobs with international nonprofits in the expectation that they would go on to live uh, a, a life in the, in, in the public eye outside of the Profumo scandal or the – or the uh, what was his name, Fanny Fox? Wil- uh, Wilbur, Wilbur Mills. Wilbur Mills. Wilbur Mills. Yeah. Um, th- th- there's a process. There's a standard template. You go from notoriety and you're known for this thing uh, and then eventually you manage to become a semi-forgotten footnote in a historical episode. And, and I, you know, it's hard to see. Maybe there's something different now about how public memory works because of the Internet. I don't know. That's an interesting topic. Has it become harder for her to subside? Not that she's made a great effort because she has done some things along the way to actually drag this up again. But, um, you know, it's So is it's she just collateral damage in this? I mean, is, is she entitled to, uh, to reemerge and reclaim her spot or well, her, her life? I think we don't want to live in a world where – first of all, I think we don't want to live in a world for the most part where we're judged by the worst thing we ever did. And I don't even know if that's the worst thing she ever did and I don't even, I don't even know that that's it's, – it, it's a pretty bad thing. Uh, but you know, do you have to live your whole life out under that sentence? But as I was alluding to earlier and I don't know if you had the same reaction, Rebecca, but uh, – and Maureen Dowd in writing about her, Maureen Dowd who really kind of built her career and got a, herself a Pulitzer out of this whole scandal to a certain degree – um, described her as kind of frozen in amber. Mm. And in fact, that was the term that she used and it bothered me because I don't think you're really frozen in amber. But anyway, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I, as I alluded to at the beginning, she, didn't, she has not changed her appearance. She looks as much at 40 like as she did 
in her early 20s as it is possible for a human being to look. And and she – I mean I think a lot of us might have made some other decisions. As I said, I mean I would have lived in a European city. <laughs> I would use only my first initial. I would change my appearance. I would do everything I could to make this go away and maybe maybe it never would anyway. But you know, uh, John Dean uh, was on uh, Where We Live the other day and I was just realizing that he and Bob Woodward and anybody else I've seen from Watergate, they're still stuck there. They can't get out of it, you know. And, and maybe – Maybe it's not her fault. Maybe if you're stuck in anything that big, you really never can get out of it. But it also doesn't seem like she's trying. But maybe that's one of the ways in which she's broken. That's kind of the argument she makes. You people broke me and I can't – I'm stuck. She uses the word stuck, right? Well, what kind of irked me about it was that she says she wants to change the dialogue and change her story. But she's appearing in the picture, you know, with the same haircut, kind of lying seductively on a couch in her white dress. And, you know, I'd rather see her do something. You know, talk is all well and good. But I'd rather, you know, start a foundation, do some good work in the name of bullying or something like that. Put your money where your mouth is. And, you know, if you want to change public opinion, don't write about something that happened in the past. Do something now to change people's opinion now. I mean, there's plenty of platforms to discuss especially with women, the sense that women are vilified every day more so than men are for their sexual choices. And she seems like a perfect spokesman to talk out about that. And yet she's more interested in kind of rehashing what happens 16 years ago. You know, there was a band briefly, uh, Lauren pointed out, called the Harmonica Lewinsky's. <laughs> uh, I don't know how far they went, but she could go on the road with that band. She could. Yeah. Can she sing? I mean, it, the thing that does strike me is that it must have been, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid double entendres as much as I can here. They're hard to do. <laughs> oh, it, come on. Let's go for it. It must have been, a, uh, no, I'm going to change the words, um, a, a kind of dizzying, hyper-oxygenating time, right? I mean, you are it, 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 you're on the one hand horrified, but you are in the middle of a story that every single human being in the United and States you're is 19. talking about. You're 19 years old, and you are you're having a Cosmo in a you know um, in a, a Washington bar, and you ask the piano player to play "Send in the Clowns" for you. This is Monica. <laughs> this is Maureen Dowd's uh, anecdote about the fir- first time she ever actually saw Monica in, in, in person, and and so. Maybe that's also part of the problem, that your most horrible experience in the world is also the most vivid and, and, you know, just electrifying experience you're ever going to have in your life. So you can never leave it. I mean, you don't want to leave it. Well, well, how seductive it must be to be 19 or 20 and be seducing the president of the United States. And there's there's a trade-off. In, I mean, when I, when I, I, I ran the, the thesis of Lewinsky's piece past Molly, my wife, um, and Molly said, oh, come on, you know, get, get off of it. She was a grown-up person, and she did what she did and was clearly utterly thrilled by it and seduced by the seductions of seducing power. Um, Especially and, Clinton's seducing power, which is well-documented. And, you know, and, and to write a piece like this, it's, it's obviously – it's inherently paradoxical. You're, you're, you're complaining that you can never not be notorious – but you're, the only reason Vanity Fair is publishing and and publicizing this thing to the hilt is well because you're Monica, Monica Lewinsky you know, who had sex with the president. So no matter how loudly you claim in this piece that you want to be out of this trap, the piece itself only makes the trap, um, you know, upgrades the trap. Although you know who really had the duty to step on the brakes there? The president of, of the United course. States. Of I, course, I, just, I don't see anybody. That's missing really, from the dialogue. Nobody's here. really. Picking up uh, the baton for I can't say anything without it being on yeah. uh, <laughs> but but I, she's really not getting defended very much, and maybe it's her methodology, and that's why I say she needs somebody who's very experienced at reintroducing somebody out of scandal. And this is let's face it, this is a huge business now. There are mm. people who are very good at this. 
John Edwards is practicing law again. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do think that it was his job to step on the brakes and, and that, you know, ultimately she's been held a lot more accountable for this in a lot of ways than he ever has. And I think some people do have a problem with Hillary that in some ways, you know, they needed to hear more from her about what her husband did rather than the, the operant quote now is that she was the, that Monica was a narcissistic looney tune. That's the thing that uh, came out of the Diane Blair records. Uh, and I think people need to hear something that emphatic about from Hillary about what the president of the United States did with one of his interns. And, and that's sort of I, the, I can't the thing imagine that, that she's ever going to address it unless it's thrown in her face. Probably not. And, and I suppose now it will be thrown in her face. I don't think either of them, with the political power they're in, want to bring this up ever again. And no. I mean, in some ways, I agree with them. You know, this is in the past, and Monica's the one that's bringing it up again. Why should Hillary and Bill comment right. on something that is? And, and Bill's having himself, I think, a great second act. All right, we're and getting he tweets. Impeached. We're getting tweets from Susan. A situation of her own making. It takes two, and one of them was exceedingly powerful. Then she then tweets, "Bill Clinton would have been able to get anyone on your panel to do." his bidding. You all seem to fawn over him still. Well, let Susan and her tweets have the last word. We've got to take a break. We've got to come back. We've got other topics and endorsements after this. You know, uh, many days on the nose, uh, when we get done with the A segment, we go to that break that you just heard, and the analysis continues, and really interesting things get said. And I sometimes do come back and say, I wish you could have heard uh, what we talked about during the break. Uh, today, I do not wish you the – I'm really happy that you did not hear what was said. But that the FCC didn't. Or the FCC didn't hear it. Rand Cooper is here with us, Jim Chapdelaine, Rebecca Castellani making her debut on the nose. We're going to shift topics here. And uh, we're going to talk about a couple of pieces that ran this week, one on The Wire, one uh, in Vox. It's something that people have talked about off and on for a while, but we've never sort of come to grips with it, which is that, um, you know, if you listen to shows like this one or or Terry Gross, if you read our articles in prestigious publications that have uh, fancy TV critics, you know, you tend to read about Game of of Thrones. There was a page one story in The New York Times within the last seven days about whether the the use of rape scenes in Game of Thrones was really becoming off-putting to it viewers as if this really kind of represented a pretty massive cultural problem. And and maybe it does. But the point that's being made in some of these pieces is that really the number of people who watch these shows is relatively small compared to the number of people who watch shows that nobody ever talks about. Uh, And uh, so so these shows fall into the category that Rand Cooper has helpfully described as uncool television. Uh, But it's uncool television that people actually watch. So, yeah, I mean, I was just pulling some figures here. And, you know, some of these popular shows like, you know, like NCIS, uh, which I've never seen in my <laughs> life, has 15 million viewers. Uh, New York Magazine made the point that I think over the last year, 82 million Americans watched at least six minutes of The Big Bang Theory. Uh, Law and Order at its peak, once again, about 15 million viewers. But, you know, I mean, it's really remarkable for one of these more boutique uh, shows like Breaking Bad to even get into double figures to get in. I mean, 10 million is just a, is a record night for Breaking Bad. Uh, Mad Men seems to have peaked at about 3.5 million, dropped down to 2 million. Uh, Game of Thrones set a record for itself with 7 million, but you know has usually been way down below this. So, so Rand, you said that you were really uh, able to, based on your own personal experience, uh, launch us into a conversation of the enduring power of uncool yeah. television. Well, the first thing I would say is I, I was shocked to see some of these numbers, and you know, sometimes if you if you exist wholly within the bubble of sort of critically approved, interesting, good shows that people like to talk about, you 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 begin to think, well, this is what everyone's watching. And the first time I saw the actual numbers on 
Mad Men, I, I was stunned. I thought Mad Men was the, the, the most popular show on television. Why is everyone writing about it if it's not? And then you look and you see, well, The Walking Dead, you know, is just destroying it in the ratings, not to mention what NCIS does. So there's, there is one context to put this in before I get into my own guilty pleasures. Um, is is the perpetual highbrow, lowbrow distinction in art in American life. It's interesting that TV itself will now become the forum for a highbrow, lowbrow. Once upon a time, people would have thought, well, TV is wholly a lowbrow pleasure, but now there is this same subdivision. It's as in publishing. And I grew up reading, uh, when, I was, when I was a teenager and in college, say uh, my, my favorite writers were Nabokov or American writers, John Updike, Saul Bellow. And I remember going to a John Updike reading many years ago at, at Seton Hall University, and it was in the student center, and there was a sign that said, John Updike reading this way. And there were bunches of students coming back from some hockey game, and, and a bunch of guys passed, and they saw the sign, and they said, John Updike? Who the F is John Updike? And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, these people, they don't know who John Updike is. Well, no, John Updike is a highbrow writer. But he was always outsold fivefold, tenfold by, you know, Harold Robbins and, and, and no critic would have ever written Daniel a review. Steel. Don't Daniel Steele. Daniel Steele. Steel. Right. Critics wouldn't write reviews of Daniel Steele. So we see this same thing replicated on TV. One of my favorite shows of recent years, Friday Night Lights, was always a great critical darling. Critics loved it. It barely hung on. It barely hung on. Uh, and and so you know there are there are reasons why people don't want to ra- write about the interest about about the really popular shows. Partly it's because they're really popular. Well, are they really popular, but also not really good? Um, yes. Yeah. I would say I, I <laughs> saw NCIS. Yes. NCIS. Yes. Yes. Uh, I saw I look it up too. once for about fifteen minutes, and mm-hmm. I forced myself to watch. And I thought it was a comedy. <laughs> I I actually was like, this is sort of funny. They're doing a parody of all these other. Uh, uh, a procedural kind of police shows. Uh, what's what's the other one? Uh, Law and Order. Law and Order. We talk. That was my. That's their branching out and Law and Order. I am prepared Lisbon. to defend the virtues of Law and Order uh, at some point. I, I I'm, I'll go with you there because because I we watched it for a little while and there's always that sort of uh, patronizing. Uh, um, Medical examiner who's talking to the corpse, saying, "Oh, baby, we got your back. Don't you worry, man. We're gonna, well, we're gonna find who did this." Law and Order also has this other function of employing stage actors and keeping them in their right. careers. But I it mean, also it, has Mark Harmon's haircut, right? No, that's the other show. It's not Law and Order. Anyone who's ever been in theater works has always been right. in a play at theater works. Has always got a Law or and Hartford order Stage or any right. downtown New York show you go to. Look at the program. They've been kept alive by a lot of these shows. All right, so Rebecca, a self described uh, nerd. Uh, how did you process this whole question? Well, I think it's also an issue of money involved. I think if you look at shows that air on Netflix and HBO, the people that are watching those pay for a subscription for them. So that is elitist in and of itself. This is not stuff that's mass marketed. This is for people that have the money to pay for Netflix, have the money to pay for HBO, and are thus, I think, have pressure on them to understand it more. So I take a show like House of Cards, which the layman really, I think, would have trouble keeping up with, but it's had this massive cult following and the press has gone crazy over it because it is highbrow viewing. So I think that there is this discrepancy as to where the marketing is going. You know, we've got these shows that are geared towards the mass media. NCIS runs on every network all the time and same with the CSIs and all that stuff. That's geared towards everyone whereas House of Cards is a niche show that's really pushed towards critics and I don't think it really 
has much to do with the people that are viewing it other than those highbrow elitists. So any are, show with an acronym basically yeah, yes. is, is going it's to – It's a giveaway. Yeah. Well, a giveaway. You know, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this and, and you know, one of the things that I often find interesting is that uh, occasionally on Mad Men, you'll see one of the characters, it's usually uh, Don Draper, watching television uh, and what he's watching and you suddenly realize he's watching some piece of junk that I couldn't – I mean unless it's a, you know, one of these hallmark – uh, not Hallmark as a brand, but one of these, you know, heralded uh, Twilight Zone episodes or Playhouse 90 or something. He's probably watching something that's really not very good, and he doesn't have very many choices either, right? I mean, he's stuck, you know, with this thing that's on television. When television really was a piece of furniture, uh, and television in that era looked like a piece of furniture too, and it was really treated like a piece of furniture. It wasn't this kind of high-performance medium from which people thought they could extract all kinds of things, things that could be discussed for hours and hours and hours. People didn't discuss Gilligan's Island, you know, the next day, uh, other than to, did you see Gilligan's Island last night? I mean, everybody to this day can sing the theme song, but people didn't discuss Ironsides the way they discuss... Um, you know, something like Game of Thrones yeah. or, or Mad Men because they didn't even have that expectation. That's not what a television was. Maybe Ed Sullivan. They would Maybe discuss. Ed Sullivan. Something would happen, the Beatles would play, something yeah. like that. But I don't think they really discussed Myron Cohen's set. On <laughs> Myron Cohen reference. Did you hear Myron Cohen last night on Ed Sullivan? Bobby, Bobby and Sissy. Yeah. That, that was Lawrence Welk, right? Yeah, yeah, be- yeah because yeah. there wasn't really that expectation. That's not what a television was. And it goes back to the, to the dichotomy that you were citing, Rand. Television wasn't a place that you went to extract cultural treasures or to do exegesis or to mine for you know literary analysis. It was a piece of furniture that talked to you. And le- I, I agree with that completely. Um, and um, I can describe some of the pleasures that I, abs- that, I, that I extract from one of these shows, and that is Law and Order. I had recently a rather lengthy convalescence, so I was uh, sitting in my easy chair, and I must have watched for a couple of weeks, and I must have watched close to 100 episodes <laughs> of Law and Order and SVU. It I think you get a free pass. It became were you, were a you, joke in our Molly would come in and say, watching this again, because they're always on. And and uh, once you know a show well enough, especially if it had a 20-year run like Law & Order, there are these little pockets of interest. For instance, the first few seasons, uh, the uh, the DA was not played by um, Sam Waterston, but by Michael Moriarty, That's these right. days a little-known actor. And I'd never seen any of the early ones because they, they were rarely on. And they happened to have a, a run of them on one of these stations. And then, there he was. Michael Moriarty was like, was, like, was like hitting, you know, striking gold. But um, <laughs> People can't see it, but, but Rand is actually jumping up and down. Well, here. well, here's what I want to say. I'll try and make it compact about Law & Order. Um, the show, of course, it's about a police procedural. But the show itself also has an absolutely regular procedural formal reality, and it is so it is dictated really down to the minute and the so sound that, effects. So that when, and the sound of what has that great gong gong sound that the mysterious sound that's hard to describe. But you can watch the show and really, if it's minute thirteen, you pretty much know what's going to be. If it's, if the, the opening um, segment always has the discovery of a body. There are two minor characters who are never going to be seen again. They're having a, a conversation. They discover the body. The cops show up. The best one was Jerry Orbach, great actor, great Broadway musical actor. And they would find the body, and then there would be some mordant comment, and then, boom, you would cut you know, to a commercial. It's the most formulaic show of all time, and I find that strangely reassuring. It's like Catholic mass. You're not supposed to. The meaning of it consists precisely in its beautiful, perfect 
always repeated form. You are at home in that form. It's not about different costumes. It's not, so. it's not about you to talk. It's not for you to talk about it later. It's for you to be situated in it familiarly, predictably, comfortable. It has a purely ritual function. That's that's my rather perhaps highbrow take on on lowbrow that lowbrow show. Uh, Tim Cook is tweeting at us. Some of us like NCIS and have an IQ above six. Get over it. Um, <laughs> I, I, res- I respect anybody's choice to like it, but they have to respect my choice to not like it too. Well, I think the point that Rand's <clears throat> making though is a point also about all the culture that we consume, and and part of it is I mean. It's like law, something like Law and Order. Okay, I have to give. I'll inject my personal detail. I live with a person who has attention deficit disorder and has a hard time concentrating. If there's not like a lot of other stuff going on, I don't. That's sort of a contradiction, but it just seems to be the case. So for her to get any work done, she has to have like the television on, and so she'll have Law and Order on because you don't have to fully engage with Law and Order. It has, as Rand says, all these structural elements. It's kind of like what some people do with baseball, right? There's a lot of people who have baseball on, but they're working, their laptops open, they're they're doing this, they're doing that because the baseball is sort of there. They can look up, they can sort of engage with. It. Now, there's, there's that, and there's the other way that television gets used. And actually, there might even be two different layers to that. There's television that gets used that is consumed voraciously and then maybe discussed the next day. But, you know, Rebecca, not to make you a spokesperson for your generation, but you be, you've lived in an age where people watch things and tweet about the thing itself while they're doing it, you know, which is an even more profound kind of engagement with, with television. I mean, the dialoguing, in my mind, is very similar in what you see when you're reading. I mean, I like to read trash as much as I like to read Kierkegaard. I mean, reading The Hunger Games serves a purpose other than reading highbrow literature, but each serve a purpose unique to themselves. And I think that television has now become the same way. I mean, I am happy to watch 12 hours of Law & Order if I'm sitting on the couch sick, or if I, I do the same thing. I like to have stuff on in the background when I'm working. But I think what these shows like Game of Thrones are doing is it's a fully immersed experience. You're really, you're glued to the TV. Everybody talks about it the next day. You need to pay attention so you don't sound like an idiot the next day when everyone's talking about it. And that's more akin to how you read and then talk in an English class. So I think it has become almost an educational tool as opposed to shows like The Big Bang, which are more escapist and relaxing and I don't have to think about this. It is what it is. It's not involving me. Whereas the other shows, especially Mad Men, really give you self-reflection and pause for thought. And I think that that's the pivotal difference between those two. When I look back on the shows I watched as a, as a kid in the 70s, late 60s, and the 70s, they were almost all bad shows. There was almost no good television. <laughs> I think it's a recent um, phenomenon, and, for sure. And, and to, so to then be an adult in the 90s and to see The Sopranos mm. was, to, was to experience a great shock and a great paradigm shift because suddenly all of this stuff that was kept off before uh, and not just the bad words and not just naked that's bodies. Partly, though, because of cable, the, the free license cable right, has. Right, right. But, you know, eventually we've had some seepage backward into, right. into network television. But my, my point is that all television in the 1970s partook of, of, of an unspoken conspiracy to exclude reality. Mm-hmm. And that exclusion, which was multifarious, um, was the basis of all television, but even even when All in the Family came on, it was sort of a shocking show because, oh my God, 
reality is, is coming in. Um, there were 60 Minutes, and there was All in the Family. There were really very few shows. And the Loud that, family. And, and, the, and, and the, the Louds, louds that experiment on, pe- on, on public television. So in a way, the bad shows now, the, so the shows we're calling bad, the lowbrow shows, even if they're police procedurals, they're, they're operating sort of by the old rules. Where, where, where a form that really excludes a lot is being maintained and, and that's being used for that exclusion is being packaged for, for our entertainment. It can be a relief in some ways to, to take a bath in the old... Uh, in the old, in the old you know what? Going show. back to our friend Tim here, I, I just want to confess, I watched Justify, I watched The Walking Dead, and I have lately but th- got... Those all have intellectual pedigrees with them, too. Really? I think. Yeah, well, I think what so. have, oh, okay, here's one. The Blacklist. All right, that might be absolutely it's sort of useless. But it, the way that James Spader sucks his tooth oh, is great. very compelling. Yeah, he's, he's a great. So glad you ended that sentence yeah. the way you did. All right, yeah. we have to take a little break, yeah. and then we'll be back with endorsements. Australopithecus would really have been sick of us debating how we're here. They're catching deer. We're catching viruses. Religion or astronomy. In the television justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the critics who write about shows that few people watch and the people who actually watch popular shows. These are their stories. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Katie Talarski, Alan Yu, and Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Josh Nalea. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mark Harmon. For show pages, articles, and video of the Faith Middleton Show staff's audition for Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, more TV analysis with NPR's Eric Deggins. And now, back to Colin. Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., by the way, has 5 million viewers, at least on its last uh, uh, network showing. So Love that background music. All right. <laughs> so it's time for the endorsements. We'll have Rebecca go last so she can sort of like just see the pros do it. Uh, so go ahead. What are you going to A couple of culinary things. First of all, if you go to the Real Artways website, I'm going to be involved in a series of culinary evenings called Inventing Cuisine. We're going to have chefs from three uh, terrific area restaurants come in. Uh, there are going to be some uh, videos that uh, about French, about famous French chefs, and then conversation with the local chef, and then food. The first one is a week from Monday on the 19th. It's with Sean, Sean Farrell from Firebox. Later on, it's going to be Tyler Anderson from Millwright and Jeffrey Lizotte from On20. So three of the best restaurants around here. Go to the Real Artways website, and you can see the schedule there. All right. Um, you said two. That oh, yes. The other was I just want to endorse uh, a restaurant that has been here. It's just celebrating its fifth anniversary. I'm reviewing it in the Times this Sunday, and that is Max Burger. There's been a huge, big spate of burger restaurants in the past eight years. I think, you know, when the economy tanks, steakhouses go under, and, and gourmet burgers become sort of the poor man's steak. So, um, and the best of these in my view, although that's contested by many. A lot of Plan B partisans out there, but I love Max Burger. It's an awesome restaurant. They pay a lot of attention to detail. They make their own pickles. They hand-cut every French fry, even if they're doing a 1,000 dinners on a Saturday. Max Burger. All right. Jim? Uh, I don't know how to follow that, except I love Max Burger. Um, uh, The Sunken Garden Poetry Festival. Mm. I will endorse that because... uh, I like poetry, and we're playing at it. Shinoles are playing. But you should go to all of them. There are more than just the ones we're playing at. 
Uh, so we're there July, June 11th, and uh, that kicks off the series, which goes all summer, and it's really great. For people who don't know, the Sun Garden, Garden Poetry Festival is uh, conducted on the grounds of the Hillstead Museum in Farmington. Uh, the Sunken Garden itself is this sort of beautiful uh, gazebo-centered, uh, well, it's a garden, basically, and it's a beautiful place to hear poetry and to hear music. It is also the site, we think, of America's only poetry-induced traffic jam. Uh, out on Route 4, uh, the traffic actually does sort of back up with cars going to hear poetry, which is kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind around. They, they, I think they aligned with the uh, cars that rhyme. Because it's old school. Yeah. War ends with Pontiac. All right. So uh, what have you got? Well, given that Monica Lewinsky bring this up in her Vanity Fair article, and I myself am a scholar of T.S. Eliot, I figured it was only appropriate for me to endorse T.S. Eliot's first major poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which is a wonderful poem. I wore wore my trousers rolled today just in honor of her. Excellent. Um, all right, so you, you grow old. You grow old. I do grow old. <laughs> There's no question about that. All right, I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to endorse or reach out to a, an old friend of the show too, and but with a new, who with a new project. Mike Pesca has moved from NPR over to Slate.com. Slate.com is. Uh, the place where they're really doing a lot of interesting things with podcasts. Mike is, has launched this week, starting on Monday, um, a very, very ambitious thing called The Gist. Uh, and it, it runs five days a week. So do, he's doing a daily podcast that really is – it's him usually plus um, one or two guests. He ends it with something called The, the Spiel, which he's in, uh, insistent that we pronounce that way, The Spiel, which is just him kind of riffing on something. It's, um, it, it is a unique showcase of Mike Pesca's talents. He was best known at um, NPR as a sports guy. But his, he has a really wide-ranging mind, a very dynamic sense of humor. Uh, NPR used him as a guest host for pretty much every show. Yeah, I think he guest hosted On the Media, Weekend, All Things Considered, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, you know, he could have guest hosted Car Talk and probably not missed a beat. Um, and, and so this showcases Mike's wide-ranging set of curiosities. And it's, you know, it's new. It's a work in progress. There's, I've only heard four of them. That's all there have been to hear. Uh, I think the show's going to grow. But all Already, I would say this week, he got me thinking about things in, in a way that I hadn't been thinking about those things. Uh, he has quite a bit of mastery of international affairs, uh, media, uh, politics. Uh, I don't think there's a subject on which Pesca is stumpable. So that's it's just a really a terrific show. And you, you can hear it at Slate.com. You can play. I play it on Stitcher on my phone. I'm sure you can figure out a way to find the gist. I'll also just quickly endorse, not because it's good, but because it's an interesting cultural artifact. This New York Observer article that ran at the time of the, the whole Clinton scandal, New York super gals love that naughty prez. It's pretty easy to find. It's up online. It's uh, by Francine Prose. It, it really does sort of, if you want to sort of revisit the awfulness that was visited upon Monica Lewinsky by people who really ought to have known better, uh, it's, a, it's an, just an interesting sort of historical document. I, yeah, Francine Prose is, uh, she's recording and she's the sort of the facilitator uh, of this conversation. All right. So anyway, we have to go. Thanks so much to Rebecca Castellani making a tremendous debut here on the show. Jim Chapdelaine and Rand Cooper maintaining their usual high standards. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble and Eric Deggins. I'm Kion Wolf. If you take two and a half men and two broke girls and add a madman and subtract a new girl, you'd have three and a half broke men and three's company. Wait, math. Betsy, can you bring me a calculator?